As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Let's kick off this hour's conversation with Emily Rowland co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock Investment Management. Emily, great to catch up with you. In the last hour on Bloomberg TV, we spoke to Ben Lader of eToro, who referred to tech names as teddy bear stocks. You hug them, they help you sleep at night, they deliver decent gains, at least for him, (laughs) because he was long tech through most of last year. Emily, do you still like those so-called teddy bear stocks? Yeah, we were long tech last year as well, really as a function of our preference for quality. So we were looking for companies with great balance sheets, tons of cash, low interest burdens. And we still like tech stocks, but we've got to recognize the fact that the S&P 500 growth index is now trading at a 44 percent premium to its 20 year average. So tech stocks were up about 58 percent last year on about 5 percent earnings growth. Now, don't get me wrong, 5 percent earnings growth was of the best globally in the U.S. tech sector. But I think it makes sense for tech to potentially take a bit of a breather here. We're not downgrading it, but I don't know how much you can expect this year after such an extraordinary 2023. What are you doing on 6040? I mean, to me, this is a really important question. I've seen huge failure of some of the marketing concepts like target benefit programs and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. To get to an asset allocation, what do you do 6040 forward? I mean, what an incredible year in 2023 for a 60-40 portfolio after a horrible 2022. It was up about 18% last year. You know, when we look at it and everybody was calling for it to be dead, right? The death of the 60-40 portfolio, clearly very much alive and well. When we look at it, we're modestly adding to our positions in fixed income. And to us, it's a math game. You know, you look on the stock side of the house, it's, you know, you're sitting at 19 and a half times forward earnings. You've got 12%. Earnings growth penciled in by analysts on the street. It's just a tough starting point. We're not saying equities will do horrible this year. It's just the the bar is really high. And when you look at fixed income, you know, 4 or 5% on high-quality bonds, of course, there was a better entry point back in October. But we still look at the income on high-quality bonds as a great way to sit here, get paid to wait as we might experience some more volatility as the lagged impact of Fed tightening does cause cracks to form in the economic picture and in the labor market. Is there such a thing as growthy value? I mean, I know you're going to tell me there's a partition (laughs) between value and growth, but if I'm upset with 30 multiples or 22 multiples, where's that growthy value where at least I can hide? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we look on the value side, you've got to be really discerning because there's a lot of cyclicality inherently in value indices. So we're looking at areas that have a high quality element to them. So healthcare, for example, one of our favorite sectors. I know a lot of people have been coming on here talking about healthcare. It's trading at a 10% discount to the broad market. We think it's going to benefit as consumer behavior shifts. Maybe we're not going to buy all the stuff we want. I know we were talking about athleisure earlier. By the way, I have an 11-year-old daughter. I'm here to tell you athleisure is alive and well. Um, but people are still going to do the things they need to do. They're going to go to the doctor. They're going to get medical care. Utilities, another area that got really, really hurt down You know, last year. Everybody left it for dead. It's trading at a 20% discount. So we could see a rotation into those sort of dogs of the Dow as potentially tech takes a breather into 2024. Emily, one thing I've really been struggling with in 2024 is what is the biggest risk? Is it a reacceleration of inflation or is it recession? Oh, that's the question of the year, I think. And, you know, I think as you're looking at looser financial conditions, this is going to be one for the history books, right? Was the Fed too dovish over the last two meetings, suggesting that cuts are coming in the summary of economic projections? Markets are pricing in five, six rate cuts this year. And of course, that's caused the loosening in financial conditions, which has been really spurring this pivot party that we've been talking about on the show uh, this year. Right now, the pivot party's feeling a little bit like maybe a hangover. Maybe we're like trying out dry January here or something as the markets are now back to this good news on the economic front, which is causing yields to back up being sort of bad news on the equity front. So as far as recession goes, I think everybody's sort of tired of talking about it. And frankly, Matt Miskin and I don't really get paid on our views on whether recession plays out or not. We get paid on how we think about positioning into this environment. So maybe if it could, you know, we're prepared if an economic contraction takes place, again, leaning into higher quality bonds, looking at income, and then rotating into these more defensive parts of the market that should benefit on a relative basis if something breaks, if something breaks, and we do see that contraction play out. I guess that the way this folds into positioning is leaning into high quality income producing uh, fixed income. Does this really yeah. get upended if the economy is hotter than expected and if the pivot party, as you pointed out, has just <laughs> run way too far? Yeah, I mean, there is a potential here, you know, certainly for rates to chop around. We're watching energy prices closely, which could play into the inflation picture here. Of course, the data on Thursday on CPI is going to be, you know, critically important here. So there is a risk here that we see a reacceleration. It's just hard to imagine an environment where inflation goes back to the 9% that we saw in the summer of 2022. Obviously, there were some very unique sort of pandemic era dynamics there around supply chains, around fiscal stimulus. So we think that ultimately we go back to a low growth, low inflation, low rate environment, which really permeated the markets and the economy for much of the last decade. Nothing changed except we pumped $5 trillion of stimulus into the U.S. economy. There's forces out there that are very much disinflationary. And we think over the longer term, that's where we go. And we're headed in that direction, certainly, as we start the year. Emily, I mentioned Ben later, and he talked about the opportunities in Europe. Is the buy still America, U.S. stocks? It is. I mean, you guys have been talking a lot this morning about how horrible, for lack of a better word, the data is coming out of Europe and certainly in Germany. And it's interesting to see, you know, stocks really not reacting to that in, in Europe. You know, there's been buoyancy, there's been participation, the weaker dollar has helped 
non-U.S. equities. But when we look to the U.S., we're holding up the best around the world economically. Our labor market is undoubtedly the strongest across the world. And earnings estimates here are more robust than they are in other areas. And then finally, we just have more high-quality stocks here in the U.S. So we do still have a preference for U.S. equities over international, especially over emerging market equities, where we think China is going to be challenged into this year. Interesting. Emily, thank you. Emily Rowden there of John Hancock Investment Management. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Brooke Sutherland knows this cold. She's Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and she knows that Clyde Cessna in 1916 invented our aviation world in Wichita, Kansas. So we're going to go to Wichita right now and talk about how we actually build the things we take for granted. How shattered is Aviation Kansas this morning, Brooke? How, not afraid, but just how is their confidence broken? I think you have to be rather concerned in Wichita. I mean, that is the home of Spirit Aerosystems, um, which is the supplier that makes the fuselage on the Boeing Max. Now, this is not, uh, it's not clear yet if this was a Spirit issue, but they have had a history of quality control glitches just in this past um, year really. And there's a lot of scrutiny over the relationship between Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems. This used to be a part of Boeing until back in 2005, executives decided they could boost their profit margins by focusing on design and outsourcing some of the actual manufacturing work. But this was really just a set of factories. This was never really meant to be an independent business. And I think this relationship is going to get a lot of scrutiny. There's been speculation of could Boeing buy Spirit Aerosystems? I think that would be very complicated considering Spirit has since diverse into contracts with Airbus and the military. But I do think both Boeing and Airbus down the road are going to look right. at vertically integrating more of that aerospace structure's work because it's just not a tenable relationship. Is this enough for Airbus to get a legit foothold into American aviation? I mean, I think they have one. What's interesting is that Airbus has remained much more vertically integrated than Boeing ever has. They've outsourced some stuff here and there, but they have not done it to the extent that Boeing did. And in hindsight, being 2020, that was clearly the right decision. I'm wondering the decision uh, by the airline companies of which planes to buy, why it is that United and Alaska Air had a disproportionate number of these particular jets. Is it just the routes that they decided to fly on? Was it just simply availability? Was it the cost? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. The reality is we have a duopoly. It's Boeing and it's Airbus. And Airbus is sold out of its marquee narrowbody jets into the 2030s. Um, I think, you know, depending on the routes you want to fly, fuel efficiency, engines are also a concern. So 
The Max Jet only takes the uh, engine from CFM International, which is the joint venture from Saffron and GE. Airbus, you can choose between that CFM engine or a variant of it or the GTF from RTX, which, of course, is having problems of its own. They've had to do a very costly recall of that engine technology because of, an, again, a manufacturing glitch that at that time involved powdered metal. So if you're an airline, I don't really know what your best option is because you're now having problems with both of these aircraft, but you don't have a lot of alternatives. The one thing we should say is that so far, all of the investigations, the grounding is really focused on the MAX 9. So that actually makes up a relatively small percentage of the overall operating MAX fleet um, and the order backlog. So the MAX 8 is really the workhorse um, of that Boeing family of jets. And that so far has not come under scrutiny, although it's a fair question as to whether it may at some point. George Ferguson of Bloomberg Intelligence was on yesterday and he was talking about how there have been some serious staffing issues since the pandemic. And that could play a role in some of the supply chain issues, or at least some of the uh, assembly line issues and the lack of assiduousness to tightening the bolts. Do you buy into this? Is this something that you've been hearing from other executives of industrial companies that they just do not have the quality or number of staffers to really make sure that things are done properly? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look back to the pandemic, we bailed out the airlines, but we did not bail out the aerospace manufacturing supply chain, um, which was a very created a lopsided dynamic where these companies just laid off in mass and then they could not hire people back when they wanted to. Now, I would also put some of the blame, though, on these aerospace manufacturing companies because we have long had supply chain issues um, in this corner mm -hmm. of the world. Even before the pandemic, companies were struggling to ramp up production to meet Boeing and Airbus goals. And so you would think that maybe these companies might have had some presence of mind to hold on to the workers. And I've written about the railroads who are making some structural decisions about not laying off workers when times get tough and whether we should see sort of a similar mindset yeah. shift in the aerospace world. I think that would be very necessary. I mean, Brooke, you're an expert in this. In the last hour, I talked about Boeing and I looked at a fancy Bloomberg chart and I'm saying something happened starting on and around 2016. As simple as I can. Did they lose the culture? Did they lose the engine? engineering discipline when they exited Seattle. I think at this point, you have to look at deep-rooted cultural issues. I mean, it has been one problem after another at Boeing. And I know Dave Calhoun has been very resistant to conversations that this is a cultural problem. He's resisted more sweeping overhauls of the engineering ranks or management ranks or the culture there. But I think What's needed is a true reset. And I go back to GE because there are a lot of crossovers between GE and Boeing management over the years. That company went through a proper cultural reset, and it is now on a much healthier path. It's breaking up, but it's uh, making money again. It's generating cash flow again, and it is overall a much healthier company. And I think that when you have these type of crises, and especially when it's sort of something as basic potentially as screwing in the bolts on a door, you have to look at how did we get here and what sort of cultural norms are in place that would allow this type of thing to happen, allow planes to be delivered in this condition? Brooke, how resistant are regulators to that conversation? I don't think they should be resistant because I think their reputation is also on the line here. Now, remember that the FAA is supposed to be inspecting and checking every single MAX plane before it is handed over to customers. That was a protocol that was put in place in the wake of those two fatal crashes when it came out that that flight control software was 
much more prone to being triggered by malfunctioning sensors than regulators realize, and also a lot more powerful. Um, they, their reputation as the FAA really took a hit in that accident, and this was meant to be part of their response to that. So the FAA also missed something here. Um, and so I think it should be in their interest to try to beef up scrutiny of Boeing and also the overall aerospace safety infrastructure. I mean, this is not the only issue that we've had. We've also had close calls on the runways. And I think we've gotten very comfortable as a country because we've been lucky enough not to have uh, very many fatal accidents in recent years. But you cannot get complacent about aerospace safety. But just quickly, where is your focus right now? Is it on Boeing, Spirit Aerosystems, the individuals that make the fuselage for the 737? Is it on the carrier, Alaska Rare, is it on the FAA? Where's your focus? Well, I, I would say all of the above because I follow all of those companies, but I think Boeing is the most important story here. How do they react to this? What types of changes do they make, whether that involves their supply chain, whether it involves management? Um, if you remember back in sort of mid-2022, there was an unusual number of Boeing customers calling for management changes. Now, that has since sort of quieted down, but I do wonder if in the wake of this accident that might start to pick back up again. Now, Boeing did name a chief operating officer uh, last month, Stephanie Pope, who's the head of their services arm, sort of making her the heir apparent to Dave Calhoun. I would keep an eye on, you know, whether any type of management changes happen sooner rather than later. But I would also say that this is a company that could really use some fresh eyes and maybe promoting from within um, <coughs> might raise some more eyebrows. Interesting. Hey, Brooke, this was great. Brooke Sutherland there of Bloomberg Opinion. What we know for certain is Ian Bremmer and all of Eurasia Group have to rewrite their top risk for 2024 on January uh, 9th. That's how fast things are happening. He is here today with the top risk. What a grim set of risks in an election year. How uncertain is it to get to March or to get to, say, the middle of May? Well, first of all, Happy New Year, Tom, and to all of you here at Bloomberg Surveillance. So nice to join you uh, as we kick off 2024 on January 9th. Uh, no, I, I don't think we have to rewrite uh, these, these risks, uh, but I think we have to recognize uh, just how incapable we, the United States, and our, our present set of global leaders are in trying to contain uh, the geopolitical risks and conflicts that we face today. You just saw we, the, the entry we had Blinken uh, standing there in the Middle East uh, saying they need to understand. We, we need them to understand. The Houthis need to understand. They need to stop this. He could have easily said the Hamas needs to understand they have to let these hostages go. The Israeli war cabinet needs to understand that they can't continue to expand um, the, the fighting in the region. The United States has zero ability um, to actually make those messages land with the actors on the ground right. who are escalating okay. this conflict. Triangulate this right now with Fareed Zakaria's essay in Foreign Affairs magazine in his post-American world and the Bremer post-American world. You say the U.S. is battling itself. That sounds a lot like Zakaria 20 years ago. Triangulate right now the lack of confidence you have in our U.S. geopolitical strategy. Uh, it was about 12 years ago when I first came up with this idea of a G0 world uh, where the United States was not going to be willing and able to be the global policeman, the architect of global trade and the promoter of global values, but that no other country or group of countries would be able to step into its place. And that as that geopolitical recession played out, there would be more conflict. 
there would be more vacuums that would be filled by rogue actors who take advantage of the comparative chaos, of the lack of leadership. 12 years of that uh, gets you much bigger and unmitigated fighting. Uh, it, it, we see that with Russia, Ukraine started in 2014. Nobody really pushed back. And now we are here in 2024. And that war is turning trajectory in a way that none of us are comfortable with uh, in the West. You see that in the Middle East. Uh, and that is set to expand significantly. And we see in the United States itself uh, that we are increasingly a tribal, non-functional democracy in crisis. Uh, very simple point. When you have the former Secretary of Defense under Trump saying this man is a threat to democracy, that, that, he was in charge of American national security under Trump. When you have the person who is running having tried um, to subvert a free and fair transfer of power, doing everything in his power to do so, in a functional democracy, that would be the number one issue of the election. Nothing else would be close. So is it that we're somehow getting our facts wrong? Or is it that the United States is not a consolidated functional democracy? Because there, there, there ain't no other advanced industrial democracies. No one else in the G7 is having the problems in legitimacy of its political institutions that the United States is experiencing in 2024. What do you think Those it is? Those are ours. What do I think? What do you is? think it is? Do you think it is a functioning democracy? No, no, I think it's a hybrid system. I think the U.S. democratic institutions have significantly eroded over the course of the past several decades. We have normalized that because all of the things that are unprecedented as they happen, and we, we still live here in the United States, we're basically saying, well, okay, I guess that's the way it works now. So impeachment doesn't work and we can impeach someone twice and they can still run again. I guess that's the way it works. You can have 91 indictments and I guess that's the way it works. You can post and say things that you never would have heard. I guess that's the way it works. Now, in, as set against the context of the world's most powerful, very functional economy and the world's most functional, very powerful global defense capacity, you'd say, well, maybe it's okay that the United States isn't a functional democracy, but it will be different. And so, yeah, I, I think we can't normalize the dysfunction of the U.S. political system, the illegitimacy of its institutions, and the fact that democracy in 2024 in the United States is in crisis. That, that is the reality. And, and our allies know that. They're deeply worried about it, all of them around the world. Um, and our adversaries see this as potentially a huge opportunity for themselves. So where do you see us 12 months from now? What do things look like? Well, I, first of all, let's talk about March, April, May. Uh, Tom said you need to completely rewrite this uh, then. Uh, when Trump gets the nomination, which is very, very likely, he will overnight become far more powerful on the U.S. and the global stage. All of the Republicans will be loyal to him in a way that right now they still have hedging capacity. Um, and the media that is following and supporting Trump and the ability to raise money to drive that campaign. And that means his policy pronouncements, like there would never be a war against Israel if I was president because I showed the Iranians, I announced that assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Well, that's going to be the policy for Trump and therefore the Republicans. Zelensky, corrupt. I'd end this war in a day. I'd show him what's what. I'm not going to give him billions and billions of dollars on the back of the American taxpayers. That becomes the policy. So the Overton window, right, of what is an acceptable policy frame debate in the United States is going to change very dramatically 
when Trump becomes the nominee, again, assuming that, it's not given, but assuming that, um, and in 12 months' time, uh, there's, there's, the stakes are a lot higher for both leaders than they ever have been before, right? So if, if Trump wins, uh, Biden and many, many people around him believe that they will face legal jeopardy, that, that Trump will politicize the well, FBI, the DOJ, the IRS, and go after them in a McCarthyite well, you know, prioritization of policy, where Trump, of course, faces potential prison time. So the stakes are much, much higher than we saw in 2020. Just quickly, Ian, is Biden the antidote to this at a time where we're, there are real questions around the defense uh, secretary and his absence, his undisclosed hospitalization, and the sense that President Biden is not very popular and isn't really addressing that? I was a little surprised uh, that we had no idea where the Secretary of Defense was uh, for several days in the middle of a war. That usually happens in China. That doesn't happen in the United States. Yeah, I know. I discussed that with an official yesterday, and he kind of had a chuckle over it. It's exactly um, what I said yesterday. Yeah. Is it really? I yeah. missed that. Was I this said. the official you talked to <laughs> yesterday? Good man. No, no. This is a Chinese official, but it was pretty funny. We all had a good chuckle over it. It's not, not what you want to see. Look, um, I, I think that Biden uh, has the intention of being the antidote. He wants to follow rule of law. But, I mean, we're in the fourth year of the Biden administration, and the country, the reality is the country is more politically divided. Our institutions are weaker today than they were when Biden became president. So he does not have the ability um, to resolve the divisions in the United States. Look, you look at Russia and Ukraine today, and you'd say that Zelensky would like to end the war. But he doesn't have the ability to do that, right? And that, that's the problem. We have these major conflicts geopolitically between Russia, Ukraine, uh, between Israel uh, and Hamas, and between the United States and itself. And in none of these cases is diplomacy an option. And in none of these cases do the principals have the ability and the willingness to stop the fighting. That that's what 2024 is. That, that is, when I look ahead in 12 months' time, that's sure. where we are. That's what G0 means. Always an interesting read. Thanks for joining us, sir. It's good to catch up. Ian Premadas, if you're Asia Group. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Part of what you get here is a view from a different geography. Nadia Martin-Wiggin is director at Zvielland Capital. We're thrilled that you could join us today from Oslo, uh, Norway. What is the oil distinction of your Norway? It's not that much production, but Norway gets so much credibility within oil analysis. How does that work? Thank you. Well, we are, of course, a steady producer, right? We are a country that delivers oil. Of course, we are not at peak production and we're 
declining quite steadily when we look forward after 2025, 2026. Mm -hmm. And on top of that energy transition as well, we're at the forefront in terms of Tesla buying and things like that. But we are very reliable in producing and delivering oil and natural gas as we saw when this uh, war started in Ukraine. A, a two-part question. Is there a one price for oil now and is that Brent crude? And how does the massive American production change your calculus on what Brent does? The U.S. market is a huge influencer, and it influences not only the oil price, it influences shipping prices and how movements go all around the world. When we look at Brent, of course, there is the North Sea, which is setting the benchmark, and we look at those physical grades, but they're very small relative to the overall picture. When we see what is the swing crude right now, because of the OPEC cuts, and because Saudi Arabia, yes, they lowered the official selling prices, but they're towing the line and maintaining low production, that swing producer right now is the United States, and that is why okay, it's a huge amazing. influence. It's amazing. an amazing change, yeah. Amazing. It, it raises the question just how influential the cartel still is. Mm -hmm. Just how much power do they have? Well, this was, I think, the big fear that played out yesterday, because by lowering those prices, Saudi Arabia has been saying throughout December, demand is good. But by dropping it so steeply in $2, they're saying, oh, actually, demand is not that strong. At the same time, when we saw U.S. production jump 1.1 million barrels per day year on year last year, oh, are they starting to go for market share? That is the concern. But it's normal for them to cut prices in January. So the market is waiting to see, okay, are they going to be cutting in February, March, and then they start to get worried. So although we had a big sell-off yesterday, we've bounced back and we think that positioning is still late on this move. I'm trying to remember the year. When was the market share gained year? Was that 2014, 2015, when they made a massive push for that? And yes, that all price absolutely. When we finally got that shale invasion on the global market, which we'd been waiting for, to be honest, for more than a year. And the demand just kept growing in Asia until it broke the back. Do you think you were able to see a repeat of that? Is that what you're suggesting we're looking out no. for? We, we do not see that right now at all uh, being the case because the U.S. growth in, in those years, you know, we, we were looking at 1.52 million barrels per day year on year growth. 1.1 is punchy when the market was expecting 500,000 barrels per day, but it's not enormous. But there is actually an analogy, which is uh, when oil prices fall to a certain level, the shale patch doesn't make sense and production stops or slows, and you see rigs taken offline. Are we close to that kind of point? If the U.S. is the swing producer, are we close to them adjusting supplies in response to a lack of demand? We would need to see WTI trading in the low 60s before I think there is a change in behavior. But because we have such a low duck count, right, the drilled uncompleted wells, the response will be slower. So this is where we expect seasonally a slowdown in that production because they're not supersonic prices, they're steady prices. But we're not going to see that kind of growth like we saw last year. The big change, though, is we should start to see rig counts actually increase some, which we didn't see last year. And that's what the market really got wrong. Bear with me because this is sort of complicated, but I remember when people argued that part of the reason oil prices were going down was because rates were so high. There was an actual cost to parking your capital in a physical good that wasn't generating uh, the same kind of income that T-bills were. If the Fed cuts rates, could that effectively send more investors into oil and cause oil prices to rise? 
It could, yes. And, and it, because especially the expectation, well, the demand will be higher, right? So then we, when we look at our forecast right now for the U.S., we're only seeing maybe 50,000, 100,000 barrels per day year in year growth in demand. It can be much higher. When we look at China, the expectation is 400,000 barrels per day year in year growth versus 1.6 last year. It's very tepid. So changes can absolutely drive that. The big driver this year, though, is non-OECD Asia ex-India, ex-China. That's 500, 600,000 barrels per day year-on-year year growth that didn't come last year that we thought would come last year. We haven't even mentioned the conflict to the Middle East. Yeah. And I'm really struggling to even understand what to look for to understand when this will influence oil prices because everyone was expecting it to and then it didn't. Mm -hmm. What are you watching for to understand that, yes, this is going to actually have a disruptive influence? Firstly, we're watching crude flows and product flows, right? So we have seen less Russian crude going through the Red Sea, but that's alongside what they were supposed to cut. So there's no big change there. We're also looking to see product exports out of the Middle East into Europe. Those should really slow down. Those should really pump up middle distillate prices, yeah. which then should support oil. That's the part that we haven't seen yet. I want to take a summary question mm -hmm. back to your work at Morgan Stanley at Philbro years ago. Mm -hmm. All that you've done in commodities, where in God's name is U.S. oil policy or U.S. oil production in five years or 10 years? Do you have any sense of the dynamic we have out to 2030? I believe that there has been a strong understanding that we need to maintain energy security. The reason we maintained lower oil prices last year and the year before was because we had a strong SPR and because we have massive production. So I think the investment will continue to be in natural gas and in oil. China is taking this out of our playbook, being the number one investor in renewables, you know, big oil producer, importing gas. And so I, I think we will absolutely continue to do this. However, when we look at these golden patches, maybe there's only 2 million barrels per day additional growth to come. It's still a massive number, 15 million barrels per day. Can I squeeze this day? in just on U.S. Mm -hmm. production and reserves? So we drained the strategic midterm reserve yes. a couple of winters ago. What's left and when are we refilling it? And are we going to do that going into an election this year? Well, I, I think this depends a lot on that relationship with Saudi Arabia, right? When we had this near peace coming before the Hamas attack, we had Saudi Arabia announcing more oil coming back. And then we had immediately after the attack, Biden saying we're going to buy oil at $79 a barrel. They bought a very small token amount. But we're in a happy range, I think, for the electorate. Of course, the electorate would like it lower, but we're not in a dangerous range. So I think slow buying will continue. But I also think we will see policy that is supportive of continued investment in oil and gas, and that will really support things forward. Nadia, thank you. It's good to see you here in New York City. Nadia Martin-Wiggin there as Felon Capital. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.